Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. This is our new Sunday evening series entitled, What is the Church? Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering. All that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord Jesus rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we prepare to hear the word of God tonight. God, we ask your blessing on this time. We're just your servants. We're just vessels, and we're asking now to be filled, not with the opinions of men, not with the quarrels of our imagination, but with your word and by your Holy Spirit. So come now and fill this place with your grace and your mercy and your love, and allow us to sense your presence as we tackle these difficult questions tonight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a reason that Paul is telling Timothy here to hold fast to that which he has learned. And he seems to be under the impression that Timothy, uh, through his mother and grandmother, who seemed to be believers, had taught him the sacred writings. In other words, they taught him the scriptures, the Old Testament, as we would know it. And Timothy was acquainted with these things. And there's a reason that Paul is urging Timothy here in this last letter that we have that he wrote to this young pastor. There's, there's a reason that Paul is urging him at the very end of this This charge to hold fast to what you have learned. Look at the beginning of verse 4, or chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. We'll see the reason. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine you might have, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So Paul's charging Timothy, be acquainted with the sacred writings. Remember the things you've learned. Preach the word, because there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. People will not endure sound doctrine. In fact, in many churches, I would dare to say even tonight in this city, in this town, 
certainly in this nation, there are churches in which doctrine is a bad word. Doctrine doesn't do anything but cause division. Doctrine doesn't do anything but confuse people. Doctrine doesn't do anything but cause church splits. Doctrine doesn't do anything but harm. You'll hear the people say, nobody wants to come to a church and hear doctrine. Why do you think there's a 30,000 plus attended church in Texas where the pastor with the slick back hair and the flashy smile that writes lots of books, you know who I'm talking about. Why do you think that church has multiple thousands of people? I'm not saying the Lord couldn't do that, but when you turn on TV and listen to the message that completely distorts and disrupts and perverts the gospel and the scriptures, you can see that this is true. Even in Timothy's time, even in our time, there's coming a time when people will not endure sound doctrine and teaching, but instead they will heap up for themselves, as the King James says, teachers to suit their own passions and their own lusts. Who doesn't want to be successful and healthy and wealthy and become a better you and whatever the other books are? Who doesn't want that in their life? Who really wants to sit down necessarily and listen to a sermon or a teaching about the Trinity? about the nature of Jesus Christ as the God-man, about salvation by grace through faith, about election, or any of the things we're going to discuss tonight. Who wants to hear that? Paul's very clear about who wants to hear that. Saved people want to hear sound doctrine. It is the lost, dying, sinful world. Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, those that are perishing, preaching of the cross is foolishness to them. They have no use for sound doctrine. They have no use for teaching because they're unconverted. And until the Holy Spirit does the miracle of conversion in their heart and they come to faith in Christ, they'll have no need for the spiritual food that's offered from this book, from this pulpit, or any others like it. But tonight, I think I'm in the company of people who are saved, who are converted, who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I trust that you're here tonight eager to hear the word and eager to hear the teaching of the word. And the way we're going to do it tonight is a little different. We're kind of staying within the context of what is the church. Uh, but tonight, I wanted to take a break and take some of the questions that you have provided for me the last two weeks. And the, the, the spirit of this, this whole thing is not to seem as if, hey, you asked me the questions and I, I'll get you an answer because I know everything. In fact, there are several I completely left out tonight because uh, <laughs> I, I didn't do the research necessary to try and give you a beneficial answer in the time we have. So I'll get with you personally if you did not hear your question asked tonight. But doctrine should not be dull for Christians. Doctrine, as one of my professors says, doctrine should uh, lift the Christian up to doxology. In other words, doctrine should make us worship. Doctrine should make us praise when God opens the, our eyes to the truth of who he is in light of his word. Sometimes doctrines do divide. That's one of the things that we don't like about doctrine sometimes. Doctrine puts us in an awkward situation where the person we're sitting across the table with or sitting down the pew from, even at this very moment, maybe some of you are married uh, like Jessica and I were for a while, and you disagreed over some serious doctrinal issues. And it puts us in the awkward position of being in that place where we know that there's something not quite right between us. We don't want to talk about it, though. Doctrine does that. But tonight, let's just ask the Lord's blessing, and let's just dive into these questions that you gave me and uh, we'll tackle them as they come. The first one tonight was about prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, Pray in secret in your closet, he says. 
So why do ministers ask members to come to the altar? Okay, everybody knows this reference, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. In fact, just go ahead and turn there if you don't mind. Uh, It was referenced this morning, but we didn't quite get this part. Matthew chapter 6. So the gist of the question as I'm interpreting it here is, if we're supposed to pray in secret... Jesus says, don't pray, you know, in front of other people and on the street corners. Go into your closet and go into your room and shut the door and then pray there. Why then would a minister ask someone to come to a place like this at the front of a church and pray publicly or out in the open? Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Obviously, the context here is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and these religious leaders, and what they're, what they're used to doing, as, as was mentioned this morning in the sermon, is going into the temple or going out on the street corner with their fine robes and their scriptures attached to their wrists and their foreheads and looking very holy and religious and respected, and the people feared them, and they would stand aloud in the street corners and lift up their prayers a vain repetition, using their big words that all the common people would look at and think, my, they're so holy and they know so much and they're so religious and so faithful to God. But Jesus was, is warning them, that's hypocrisy. But the problem isn't that they're praying in public. The problem isn't that they're praying on the street corners. As we saw today, there was a Pharisee and a tax collector both praying aloud in public. That's not the problem. Look at what Jesus says here in the middle of verse 5. They pray in the synagogues and the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. So as with everything with Jesus, it's not a matter of do and don't, a checklist of legalism. It's not don't pray in the streets or don't pray in the corners, don't pray in public. The point Jesus is saying is found in that little motive there. Don't pray in public to be seen by others. In other words, don't pray to gain attention for yourself. In a church service or a crusade or something, when, a, when a, an invitation or a call is made to come forward and, and profess Christ or pray about something, that's not necessarily the, the point of saying, um, come and pray in front of everyone to be seen by others. In fact, most altar calls or invitations in churches are, are intended just to come and pray to show your solidarity with what the preacher has said and to indicate that you need prayer from other people. Also, when someone is called forward to accept Christ, it's just a matter of publicly professing something that might already be true in their hearts. In other words, we don't come to an altar or to the front or anything up here to be saved. That happens in the heart when we have faith in Jesus. This is just a way of making it kind of final, which I actually believe is taken care of in the sacrament of baptism. But nonetheless, we need a profession of faith that's visible and public. So the point is the motive, not the actual thing of praying in public. Number two... This is an interesting question. Why do I see in the Baptist church so much the attitude of it being the church? Italicize the the. Why do I see in the Baptist church so much the attitude of it being the church? And I, the gist of this question is obvious. Why, why does it seem like in the Baptist church or a Southern Baptist church, why does it seem like there's this attitude that we are the church, we have the right doctrine, we have it going on, and the other churches are well Uh, they're all right, and then some of them are pretty bad. Well, the truth is every denomination thinks this. 
<laughs> Every denomination thinks this or there wouldn't be a denomination. Now, here's the thing we need to clarify. There is no such thing, and this is what I was talking about a few weeks ago. I remembered that I had said this, but I never returned to it. There is no such thing as the Baptist church. There is a Baptist church. First Baptist is a Baptist church. But as a denomination, we are a loose, voluntary connection, a collection of voluntary churches that make up a convention. Really, the Southern Baptist Convention only truly exists uh, three or four days out of the year when they meet in June. Other than that, we are completely autonomous, self-governing, self-running, self-funding churches. We don't answer to a higher power beyond what's right here in our own church. We don't have bishops. We don't have a presbytery that we answer to. We are self-governed and autonomous. In that way, there is a Baptist church, but there's no such thing as the Baptist church, as you would think of the Catholic church or the Presbyterian church or the Mormon church. There is a Baptist church. So there's that. The other thing is, when you, when you talk about being the church, we think that we're the church. I don't think that most Baptists would describe themselves as the only Christians. I, I don't think that any of us in this room would think we're the only ones that are going to heaven because we're Baptist. I doubt that when there's some Baptists that think that. I don't think that, there are, I don't think that there's a lot of Methodists or Presbyterians that believe the Bible that think that too. Now those Church of Christ folks, you've got to watch out for because they think they are the only ones. They'll be surprised one day. But the Baptist churches, in general, just like a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, we attend a Baptist church. Hopefully you attend a Baptist church because you have searched the scriptures, you look at our statement of faith, and you think in your mind that that lines most closely with what the scripture teaches. In other words, if you take a Baptist faith and message 2000 and you look at it and you say, well, this is pretty close to what the Bible teaches... And I think that's probably true. I don't believe in infant baptism because it says here, Jesus came out of the water. The the word baptize itself means to immerse. You know, all those things we talked about last week. So I don't believe that. I don't believe, you know, the Bible doesn't teach any kind of uh, hierarchy of church government like bishops or anything that teach. We, We go through every little point like that and we say... I think I'm Baptist. Hopefully that's the way you are tonight. Some of you married into Baptist or or whatever, and that's why you're here tonight. Uh, So I I encourage you to look at our doctrine, look at our teaching, look at our statement of faith, and see if you really are a Baptist. You're welcome here if you're not, but uh, you might be uncomfortable sometimes. (laughs) So the thing is, every denomination thinks that their interpretation of the Scripture and their statement of faith is more close or closer to what the Bible teaches than someone else. That's why I'm a preacher in a Baptist church tonight and why I did not decide to go to a Pentecostal church or a Methodist church or any other kind of church. There are certain convictions about the scripture that keep me bound to a particular form of doctrine. In other words, everybody believes something and I haven't met anyone yet that thinks that they're wrong all the time. So uh, (laughs) the Baptist churches think that they align more closely to scripture and I wouldn't want them not to. I don't think you would either. So other denominations think that their interpretation is correct. Other denominations think that their interpretation is correct. It's just the nature of humanity after the fall to be confused and to not know the answer to everything. So we try as hard as we can to align closely with Scripture, and then we attend a church that preaches and teaches that way. Number three is a biggie, so we're going to take a little bit of time on it. Please explain, this is a great start here, please explain how the Trinity works. One God, three persons, not three people, and not just one person, 
in three manifestations. So explain how the Trinity works. And really, uh, this is a great summation of how the Trinity works. So let's look at this little diagram uh, that I've, I've, I've given for you here. This is something that I've tried to pass around when I'm able. It's as old as the church itself. This is how the early church described the Trinity. If you see in the middle there, you have the nature of God. I'm looking at it on the back there. That's why I'm awkwardly pointing to the back. Uh, in the middle, you see God. Okay? Surrounded by the three members of the Trinity as we know them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see that each member of the Trinity is connected to the inner God by the word is. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Okay? That means all three persons share in the nature of the one God. Each three is individually God, but they all three are still one God. And you also see between the persons that there's a demarcation. The Father is not the Son, and likewise. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and likewise. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and likewise. They're not to be confused as each other. So remember that diagram, and let's move on to some some early problems people had with the Trinity in the church. Let's look first at an idea called Sabellianism. First of all tonight, everybody should be taking notes. If you're not... I have some blank pieces of paper. Would anybody like them while we have a moment? Anybody like a blank piece? Amy would like a blank piece of paper. You're going to want to write this stuff down because you're going to want to return to it later. You can always watch it you know, online and listen to it, I know. But if you want a blank piece of paper from Brother Kerry, would you raise your hand up? I'll keep going while we do this. I can always give you the answers or the answers. I can give you the, uh, the stuff later. The first serious uh, heresy that the church faced on the doctrine of the Trinity was called Sabellianism. If you see this definition up there, it's very simple. Sibelius was an early 3rd century priest who said that God does not exist in three eternal persons, but is rather one person who takes on different modes or roles at different times. That makes sense? Sibelianism was taught by a man named Sibelius. He said, don't think of the Trinity as three different persons who are always existing at the same time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think of them as, think of the Trinity as one person who exists or takes on different roles or different manifestations. He was the Father in creation. He was, he became the Son in redemption, and now he acts as the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, modern denominations that hold this are the United Apostolic or Oneness or what they call Jesus only Pentecostals. You have to watch out for them because they are Sibelian. Another word for this is modalists. In other words, God takes on different modes. Now, I want to tell you something tonight that's become obvious to me just talking to people and judging from my own Sunday school appearance, uh, Sunday school appearance, Sunday school experience, many a Sunday school teacher with good intention and with no inkling of heresy in their heart have taught modalism. Let me ask you how many have heard these illustrations about the Trinity. Has anyone ever heard the illustration of water to describe the Trinity? Yeah, right here. Water, let's say a single molecule of water, one little molecule of H2O, can be, or water itself can be a solid, a liquid, and a gas. Okay? That's three things that one substance can be. Okay? Let's just boil it down, though, to the one molecule. The one molecule cannot be all three at once. But they say it's like, you know, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are like that. You got ice or you got water or you have a gas. You have steam. 
It's a bad illustration. Second, how many have ever heard the one about masks, putting on different masks or different roles? So it's like a person going to a masquerade ball or something like that, and they have one mask and another mask and another mask. That's kind of like what God is, according to modalism. God puts on different masks for different times and different occasions. Or the role thing, about different roles. Uh, Me, Matt, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a youth pastor, I'm a son, I'm a grandson. I have many different roles, but I'm one person. How many have ever heard that illustration? I have different titles and different names, and I do different things, but I'm only one person. All three of these illustrations, with good intention again, we're not saying that people are outright teaching heresy or trying to, but they are extensions of modalism. Or this idea that there's only one person in the Godhead that acts as three different things at three different times. So he was the father then, he became the son, and now he acts as the Holy Spirit. Okay? The second big heresy that uh, erupted in the church was Arianism. Arianism is uh, founded by a man named Arius, who was also a preacher in the early 4th century... He said the Son is the first, the Son, S-O-N, as in the Christ, is the first and greatest creation of God the Father. The Son is like a mighty God, but is not God in his nature. Okay, does this make sense? That means the Father, who is really God, created the Son, who is kind of a lesser, small g God, like a mighty angel or an angelic being, but that son is not God Almighty. He doesn't share in the nature of God. Uh, Modern heretics that hold this are cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or another group that was an offshoot of them called the Christadelphians. The Christadelphians are a rowdy bunch because they will find, and I, I blogged for a while, they will find your blog, like look for it. They don't even know you. You know, they're somewhere across the world or something. They'll find you just to start an argument about the Trinity if you say anything about the Trinity. They call them trolls. Christadelphians are big trolls. Number three, another big heresy that faced the early church. This is a big one. Are you ready for it? Pneumatomachianism. That's a great word. Just look at it. It means fighting against the spirit. You all know the, the word pneuma. The Greek word pneuma means spirit, and tomaki means to fight against. So uh, this, this whole idea came about in the 3rd or 4th century after the first council of Nicaea established that Jesus is indeed God. So we established that. There's another group that comes up under another heretic named Macedonius. And he says, okay, I'll buy that Jesus is God. Okay, that's fine. Jesus is the same nature as God the Father. We're not Arians. But the Holy Spirit now, he's not God. Some said he wasn't even a person. He was more like a force that came out of God the Father and God the Son. So these are the ones that fought against the nature of the Holy Spirit as being God after the nature of the Son was uh, was established. Uh, there's not really any modern adherence to this, like per se, but if you look at a Jehovah's Witness, they're basically like this because they deny that the Holy Spirit is a person. They say he, uh, it is an impersonal force or something that comes off of God. Okay, number four, partialism. That's a bit easier, isn't it? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each one-third God. Together they make up the nature of God. Bad illustrations once again. Even old St. Patrick fell into this one. Uh, a shamrock. Look at the shamrock. How many ever heard that one? I mean, that's like Trinity 101. People try to explain the Trinity. It's got three leaves, but it's one plant. Yeah, but one of those leaves plucked off the plant is, not, is no longer a shamrock. You put them together, you've got it, right? How about an egg? 
I've heard this one nearly all my life in Sunday school and Bible school. The egg has an egg white, an egg yolk, and an egg uh, shell. <laughs> and the three put together make up one egg. And that seems like a you know, good illustration of the Trinity, except a yolk is not a whole egg. And a white, obviously, is not a whole egg. And the shell is not a whole egg. That falls short of describing the Trinity, in which the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They're not one-third God each. They're each God in and of themselves, three persons and one God. Number four or five, whatever we're on now, tritheism. This is probably the one uh, that sounds the least like Christianity. Nobody's probably ever espoused this knowingly. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are simply three individual gods. Just, you know, look at Mormonism. Mormonism, in fact, is really like polytheism more than just tritheism. They believe in many gods that go on to, you know, have their own planets with their own spirit wives and things like that. But on earth, we only have these three that we really pay attention to. Elohim, the Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and and the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the base, you know. When you come down to the end of it, I can't explain the Trinity. Let's just say there's three gods. That's kind of the last resort. I can't make it all make sense. One plus one plus one always equals three. So let's just say there's three of them. Okay, back to the diagram. Let's see how none of these heresies work. Back to the diagram. I think I have it next. Or don't I? Everybody remembers it, right? You drew it. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They are not to be confused with one another. Our united Pentecostal friends, not brothers, because they, 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 they lack this one significant point of doctrine. Our united Pentecostal, one is Pentecostal friends, they say that Jesus is the one person of the Godhead who acted as the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and now acts as the Holy Spirit in the church. But it's just one person whose name is Jesus. Okay? That's the heresy of modalism. You see how we have to have all those things in place. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they're not to be confused. The Father is not the Son and vice versa all the way around. Let's look at these points about the Godhead. We believe in Christianity of one God that reveals himself in three persons. Number one, these three persons are co-equal. That means not one of them is less God than the other. Jesus is just as much God as the Father. And the Father is just as much God as the Holy Spirit. And all the way around you can go. Number two, these three persons are co-eternal. That means they have always existed and they always will exist. Number three is important to tack onto that. They exist simultaneously together. There was never a time when the Father was not the Father. There was never a time when the Son was not the Son. There was never a time when the Holy Spirit was not the Holy Spirit or have existed. From eternity past to eternity present, our God has always existed simultaneously in three distinct yet unseparated persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number four is very important as well. They're all three worthy of worship. It's a big deal when you look in your New Testament and you see glory and honor and praise being attributed to Jesus because these were Jewish people who knew better than to attribute the glory of God to someone else. But they willingly and freely attributed glory and honor to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. They invoked all three names, Paul and almost every one of his epistles, either started it or ended it with an invocation of the Holy Trinity. In our benedictions, we kind of echo that from what Paul did, the blessing of God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say when he told, told us to baptize? Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see that combination of three, yet we know throughout the whole Bible that God is in essence one. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one 
existing in three persons. Um, let's look at this next part, different roles. They're co-equal, co-eternal. They exist simultaneously, and they're all three worthy of worship, but they have different, different roles. Number one, the father. The father plans and orchestrates. We're going to see a little bit of that that night in our, in our next discussion. Let's talk about salvation. Uh, God the father plans and orchestrates salvation. He planned and orchestrated creation. Number two, the son is the one who accomplishes it or provides it. Think about creation again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we know from Colossians and from Hebrews and from John chapter 1 that it is Jesus who did the creating work. So we see God the Father plans and orchestrates and declares things. The Son does them in obedience to the Father. Lastly, the Holy Spirit comes and applies. Even in Genesis chapter 1 there, the Father is the one creating. Jesus is the one actually doing the creating. But it's the Holy Spirit that's hovering over the face of the waters, energizing and preparing that mess, that chaos, literally, for the creation of Jesus by God the Father. So we see all three working at once, but they're not all three doing the same thing. Think about your marriage in this way. Think about gender roles in the church in this way. We are all equal in God's eye, equal in value. The man is not less than the woman, and the woman is not less than the man in value before God. But God has said in the home and in the church, there is to be male headship. Just as in the Trinity, the Father is the head, and the Son is subordinate to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit is always pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is always bringing people to the Father for his glory. God is glorified in the Son. The Son is glorified by the Holy Spirit. All three working harmoniously to bring glory to the Godhead. That's the Trinity. I hope that's adequate. Uh, All of your illustrations will always fall short. We cannot illustrate the Trinity adequately enough. It, It just doesn't make sense to our human minds. It is helpful, though, for me sometimes to think about the nature of God not so much as a title or a name for God, but what he is. Does that make sense? It's not so much when you say God, you're addressing the person of God. God is the nature, that is what he is. The Father shares in that nature, the Son shares in that nature, the Holy Spirit shares in that one nature that is God, and they each possess it, but they're not to be confused. Okay? The Trinity is one of those things that just slips through our fingers as Christians. And sometimes we inadvertently end up preaching or teaching or witnessing some kind of one of these heresies. Unmeaning, we don't mean to. We don't mean to be heretics. And we, you know, we're trying to defend against Mormons on one hand and Oneness Pentecostals on the other and Jehovah's Witnesses that are at our door. And we don't, you know, over here we're trying to explain how God is one and three persons. And over here we're trying to explain how he's really three. And it just gets confusing sometimes. And sometimes we just resort to cheap illustrations that really don't do any help to us. It's better just to memorize that diagram, look at your creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, even the Athanasian Creed, creeds like that that will help you give words to what the Bible teaches in its pages. All right? Let's move on to our last question tonight, and you'll see why it's our last one, because uh, there's a lot of junk piled into it. I thought that we might get this question <laughs> in our cards. What is Calvinism or Reformed theology? What is Calvinism 
or Reformed theology. I also got two more questions kind of in connection with this. One uh, was, do you accept Jesus or does he call you? And you respond. In other words, is it up to you or is it up to Jesus? And then number two, can you lose your salvation or the idea of being once saved, always saved? That will fit into this whole discussion nicely. So we'll just kind of group all those together. Let's turn first to John chapter 1. A great deal has been made over Calvinism and Reformed theology because of its resurgence, especially in the Baptist world. Um, The Southern Baptist Convention has uh, been lit up with the discussion of Calvinism these past couple years. And in response to that, in 2013, the SBC, uh, at the SBC meeting in June, they released uh, a document called the SBC Statement on Calvinism in which the council, the advisory council on Calvinism met during that convention. And this was a mixture of Southern Baptist leaders, seminary presidents and everything, some Calvinists, some non-Calvinists, some right in the middle. They met and developed this statement about cooperation and working together and worshiping together, even with those differences. You can find that if you just Google it or search it or come ask and I'll give you a copy of it. There was a whole statement put out about what we affirm together, even even with what we differ. Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay? So those who believed on him, it's evidence that they were born not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but the will of God. Let's look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, look at verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. About verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's go to John chapter 6. John 6, 44. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at John chapter 10. A few more chapters to the right. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd." Let's go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to do a little Bible survey here before we try to answer anything. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
go over to Romans 9, just right beside it there. Starting in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Two more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter from the get-go says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So why the Bible survey with these verses? Because every single Christian who believes in the inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration of God's word must deal with these passages. They are not easy. They have caused fights. They have caused splits. We'll talk about a particular situation in which brother sat across from brother and had to part ways because of this and these passages. These are not Calvinist passages. These are not Arminian passages. These are not Baptists' passage. These are not Presbyterian passages. These are passages that belong to God. And when we approach them, we cannot simply say, I don't believe in election. Because clearly, some sort of election is taught by the Bible. Some sort of predestination is taught here in the Scripture. We don't have the right or the privilege to say, I don't believe that doctrine at all, and to ignore it and to choose to look to other things. So we're going to talk about some fights this has caused. The first fight this has caused in the early church in the 400s was between a man named Augustine and a man named Pelagius. Everybody knows St. Augustine, or at least you've heard of him in the 300s and the 400s. He wrote the famous work that a lot of people still read called the Confessions. 
Augustine versus Pelagius. This wasn't like a boxing match, but this is what happened. Augustine was praying one day in the ears of of Pelagius. Augustine prayed this prayer. Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and then grant what you command. In other words, Augustine was saying, Lord, you have every right to command everything of us. You can demand whatever you want from us as your creation. You have every right to do that as our Lord and our creator. So command what you will. Demand of us whatever you want. But then he prays, Lord, then give us grace to do that which you command. Pelagius heard this and Pelagius was struck He thought, this can't be right. Why would God command people to do something that they don't have the ability to do? That seems unjust on God's part, according to Pelagius. If God commands people to do something, it makes sense that they should have the natural, inerrant ability to do it in and of themselves without God stepping in and doing something for them. Doesn't that make sense to our human understanding? If God has commanded you to do something, but he has to be the one to enable you to do it, it seems like there is some sort of injustice with God. So Pelagius answered this very simply. He said, well, we must have the ability. Whereas Augustine stressed original sin and that we're born in sin, that we're lost and we're dead in our sins and trespasses, Augustine stressed those doctrines. Pelagius said, Adam sinned and we become sinners when we sin. But we are not by nature fallen creations. This came before a synod. This came before a council. And Augustinianism was upheld as the orthodox doctrine. And Pelagianism was condemned as heresy. Now here's what we have to be careful about. On both sides of the issue of Calvinism or election or whatever we're going to call it. There are people that disagree on the terms and how these things work out. What we can't do is disagree with something without knowing what's at stake. Because for Pelagius, it meant denying that men are born as sinners. For Pelagius, it meant saying that we do have the ability in and of ourselves to choose God. We do have the ability just naturally by being humans to obey God. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can slip into Pelagianism trying to avoid Calvinism or something that we think sounds like it. When in fact, no Arminian that I know would ever espouse any kind of Pelagianism. So we have to be careful that we don't go too far defending one side of the other. So let's talk about how this all ended up later. Augustinianism was upheld. Pelagianism was condemned as heresy. Let's flash forward to the 16th century. Everybody knows what happened in the 16th century in the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Protestant Reformation, the 16th century Reformation, over one, really one significant issue, and that was justification by grace alone through faith alone. In other words, men like Martin Luther and others stood up against the Roman Catholic Church who was selling salvation, basically, and saying that you could earn it through seven sacraments or these works. Martin Luther and others said, no, salvation is only by grace through faith in what Jesus has already done. So that was the crux of the Reformation. Luther himself belonged to an Augustinian order before he was converted. He was familiar with Augustinianism and the idea of our will being in bondage to sin. He knew the works of Augustine. 
Plus, the cry of the Reformation was like the cry of the Renaissance, ad fontes, to the source, to, back to the fountain. In other words, let's go back to where all this came from so we can get the answer. So for Luther, it was clear. Let's go back to Augustine. What did Augustine say about grace and salvation and free will and predestination? What did Augustine have to say back then, a thousand years before his time? So the teaching of Augustine becomes a bulwark for the Reformers and the Reformation. Okay, that's Germany. Martin Luther, bondage of the will, Augustine. Okay, let's go over to Switzerland. A man named John Calvin was born in 1509. He was raised, went to law school, became a lawyer, but then became a pastor and a theologian later in life. His brand of reformational teaching took off in Switzerland. He escaped to Switzerland from France uh, to avoid persecution as a Protestant. In Switzerland, he flourished and was able to pastor a church and preach and write, wrote numerous things, one of which is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is a massive volume just simply covering Christian theology. He actually dedicated it to the king of France, hoping, hoping that when the king read it and was flattered by that, he would actually read it and be converted to Protestantism, but he was not. So the Swiss churches, now they turn over to the Reformation. And then all throughout the Netherlands, the Dutch turn to the Reformation, away from Roman Catholicism. So now we have the Dutch Reformed Church, okay? It's making sense. In Germany, you had Luther, that most of Germany was now Lutheran. It's very similar. Over here in the Netherlands, you have the Dutch Reformed Church, the Protestant upheaval against the Roman Catholic system. Insert into this system, the Dutch Reformed Church, a man named Jacobus Arminius. Jacobus Arminius was a professor at the University of Leiden, and that was there in the Netherlands. Teaching one day, and over a course of time, Arminius said, I disagree with some of the points of the Dutch Reformed or the Calvinist Church's system. He was a Dutch Reformed person. He belonged to a Calvinistic church, but over time he was convinced that there were some things that the Calvinist or the Reformed church had wrong. He gained a following through his teaching. This following, the following was called the remonstrance. The individual members were called the remonstrants. So remonstrance and remonstrance, same thing. One's the movement, one is the people. Things became so heated and so serious in the Netherlands over this issue the remonstrants had their case against the Reformed Church. The Reformed Church had their documents and their creeds, which they were standing on. And there was battles, not like literal battles, but there were theological and, and, and philosophical debates over these things. So at last, a synod was called in 1618 to 1619. First of all, let's talk about these points of disagreement. What was it that Arminius was disagreeing with the Reformed Church about? Number one, depravity. He disagreed with them over the issue of depravity. The Dutch Reformed Church held that man's free will is in bondage to sin. He can neither do nor know right without God first acting upon him. Every aspect of human nature is tainted by sin. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. So this was a, a main point of the Reformed Church's teaching. Number two, election. God did not leave all humanity in their sins and trespasses, but chose to save some out of his grace and mercy. These are the elect that were, not, that were chosen, not because of anything good seen in them, but merely because of God's free, sovereign grace and mercy. Number three, the atonement. 
These are the points of disagreement here. Number three, the atonement. Those whom the Father chose in eternity past are the same for whom the Son came to bleed and die. While his atonement was sufficient to atone for the sins of all humanity, it was efficient only for those whom God had elected in Christ before the foundations of the world. Number four, grace. Those whom God has chosen in Christ are regenerated, called, convicted, and converted by the working of the Holy Spirit. This work is the sovereign plan of God and cannot be fully or finally resisted. Those whom God chose, he will save. And then five, perseverance. Those chosen by God in Christ will persevere to the end in faith and repentance. They may backslide, but they will return and can never ultimately fall away from a state of grace. Okay, so those are the five things that the remonstrants, the Arminians, had a problem with in the Reformed Church. Here is what they proposed uh, in light of those things. Number one, for depravity, total depravity, they agreed Pretty much fully affirmed. Man is dead in his sins and trespasses. He cannot do anything good unless God acts first upon him. It's important for us to understand that the opposite side of total depravity is not a little bit of depravity. On both sides of this issue, according to the Bible and according to the people themselves, you put Calvin in a room with Arminius, there would have been no disagreement on the issue of total depravity or inability. They would have both agreed with Augustine that we cannot do what God commands unless God gives us the grace to do it. Both would agree on that. We must understand that. Number two, conditional election. You can see here what the Dutch Reformed Church said. They said that it's not based on anything seen in us. The Arminians said that election is conditioned. It's conditioned upon something. God looks down the corridors of time and sees who will respond to the gospel and who will choose him, then God chooses them. Okay, that's the Arminian position. It's conditioned upon foreseen faith. In other words, God sees who will choose him, then he chooses them based on their choice. Number three, unlimited atonement. Now, this comes with a little bit of caveat. Just listen. We said that they believe, that the Reformed Church believed it was sufficient for everybody, but efficient only for those that God had chosen in Christ. There are just some small differences here to listen, to listen for. The Arminian position says this, Christ's atonement on the cross was sufficient to cover the sins of the world, same to that point, but is only efficient to those who will come to him in faith. Okay? So, according to the Arminian position, Christ's blood was shed for all humanity in the same way. Its application is up to the individual sinner. So, in the Reformed system, it was Jesus coming to bleed and die, knowing he was bleeding and dying for his elect. It was a sufficient atonement for the whole world. In other words, everyone could be saved by Jesus' one death. He didn't die any less or any more because of this doctrine. To the Arminian, he came to bleed and die in the same way for everyone. What makes them saved then? It hinges on their response to that. In other words, Jesus has done all he can do to make salvation possible. Now it has to be applied through this response. Number four, resistible grace. You can see here that the Reformed Church said that God's grace, when it goes after a sinner whom has been chosen in Christ, it will retrieve the sinner, and it cannot be ultimately resisted or thwarted. According to Arminianism, 
God by the Holy Spirit may call and convict any number of people. Many of these might ultimately, ultimately resist the call of the Holy Spirit and be lost. God's grace and salvation, salvation, according to Arminianism, is both resistible and conditional. And then fifth, perseverance of some. According to Arminius, some may come to true faith in Christ, but then they may fall away through unbelief and truly be lost. So with an Arminian position, you have the door open, not necessarily for losing your salvation, like you just misplaced it, but forfeiting your salvation. And this was the logical conclusion for Arminius. If we have complete and autonomous free will, then when it comes to the point of deciding the end of our salvation, it's still up to us after we're saved. And if we turn our back on Christ after we've been truly saved, Arminius said, you will be truly lost. So you could be truly regenerated and then truly damned again through unbelief. So what happens? The sin out of Dort is called in a Dutch town called Dordrecht, 1618 through 1619. This whole issue is coming to a head. And the Arminians are invited before the council to present their position. And they come and present it. They're quickly dismissed, and then the gathering elders in the council of the Reformed Church decide they're not going to buy the Arminian system. And in its place, they establish what has been contested. In other words, the Arminians come in with five problems, five objections. In response to that, the Senate of Dort says, okay, we hear what you're saying, we disagree with you, and we're going to reaffirm these five points. And here come the elusive five points of Calvinism. This is where they come from. Long after Calvin, about 100 years after Calvin, come the five points of Calvinism in response to these five points of objection. We know them affectionately and some unaffectionately as the tulip. And here's how they're described using the same things we already saw. Total depravity. I mentioned earlier just depravity. Just look at the total. That's where your T comes from. The explanation is the same. Number two, unconditional election. So everybody agreed that we're totally depraved. Okay? And the Arminians and the Calvinists both said we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot do anything good unless God helps us. Amen. Okay? Number two is where the disagreement started. Arminians said God's election of you was conditioned upon your choice. So God knew what you would do and then chose you or didn't choose you based on that. The Calvinists said that it was unconditional. That God, not because of something he foresaw, but simply because of grace and mercy, chose some. Okay? Number three, limited atonement. They established this L of limited atonement. Again, that it was sufficient for some, or sufficient for all, but efficient only for those whom God had given to Christ. And then number four, irresistible grace. Because you're totally dead in your sins and trespasses, God has unconditionally chosen some to receive salvation. Those are the ones for whom Jesus came to die, and those are the ones whom the Holy Spirit will inevitably go after and will receive. Okay, that's that irresistible part. Who the Holy Spirit goes after, they will ultimately come to Jesus. And then fifth, perseverance of the saints was established. That's your P, perseverance of the saints. Those chosen by God in Christ will persevere to the end in faith and repentance. They will not be ultimately lost. All right, let's move quickly into Baptists and Calvinism. 
I swear I'm near the end here, so just hold on tight. Baptist and Calvinism. The birth of the Baptist movement, as we know it, came out of Puritanism. Anybody familiar with the Puritans? John Bunyan was a famous Baptist Puritan. Charles Spurgeon was said to be the last great Puritan. They were those within the Church of England who were Protestant and Reformed in their doctrine, and they disagreed with the Church of England continuing to worship and act like a Roman Catholic church. They sought to purify it, Puritan, from those Roman Catholic practices. Baptists came out of that. Presbyterians came out of that. It was by, in and of its nature, it was a Calvinistic or Reformed mindset. Baptists were born out of that. The first official confession of faith for Baptists in England was the 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We know it as the first London Baptist Confession. What's interesting is when the Presbyterians met, they formed the Westminster Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith. The first London Baptist Confession is almost identical to the Westminster Confession that Presbyterianism used, except on issues of church government and baptism. Almost identical. So it was a very Reformed Calvinistic document. Number three, the second London Baptist Confession in 1689 was a departure. It didn't copy the Westminster, but it was still very Calvinistic and very Reformed. It was just kind of an original creed for Baptists. What about American Baptists? American Baptist confessions continued in the stream of Calvinistic belief. You might have heard of the Philadelphia Statement of Faith or the New Hampshire Declaration, to name a few. Number three, or whatever number we're on, there's been the idea that there are two streams of of Baptists in America. And, and this is true, but not in the way that people, I think, want, want, to, want to establish. There's this idea that in these early two Baptist associations, there was Charleston and there was the Sandy Creek in North Carolina. And there's this mindset that has been uh, perpetrated by a few that the Charleston branch was Calvinistic and the Sandy Creek branch was not and, and that's just not true. The, true, the northern one did a little more for missions and evangelism, but their statements of faith were the same. They were both Calvinistic systems. Now, there was free will Baptists in America. There were general Baptists in America. In fact, in New England at that time, there were two main denominations. You could either be general Baptist or free will Baptist, or you could be a Unitarian uh, cult. <laughs> so you could be one of the two. So there was such a thing as general Baptists, free will Baptists that were not Calvinistic, but they were not part of the Southern Baptist movement. Okay, next here, the Southern Baptist Convention was born from Calvinistic Baptists. James Pettigrew Boyce and John Broadus, who, from whom we get the, the Broadman hymnal and Broadman and Holman as the Sunday school board used to be called, They were the founders of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which had its start in Greenville, South Carolina in 1859. That was the first and the flagship denominational theological seminary for Southern Baptists. James Pettigrew Boyce and John Broadus both adapted a confession of faith we know as the Abstract of Principles. The Abstract of Principles is a very Reformed or Calvinistic statement of faith which many Baptist churches at that time chose to use as their official statement of faith since there was no such thing as the Baptist faith and message yet. It's not new to Baptists, and it's not new to Christianity. Now, here, here at the end, here's what I want to say to you. 
I don't want to come across with any of this material as, as teaching or preaching Calvinism. I, I wanted to do this because I had several questions in this vein to simply inform you of what it is, where it came from, and what it means. Because there's a lot of stuff that happens when, when, when not much is known about something. Fear sets in, um, strife sets in, disunity sets in, and then there's problems because there, there's not a lot of knowledge necessarily about what something is, but there are things that are, are, are put out there as if they're true that might not necessarily be true. So today, why the sudden appearance of Calvinism in the Southern Baptist Convention? If it's not new, if it's not new to Baptist, if it's not new to Christianity, we see it goes back to the 300s, it goes back to the 1500s, it goes back to the Baptists in America. Why, why, do, why are we just now hearing about it now? Why does it seem so new and so weird? Number one, pragmatism. Pragmatism took hold of evangelicalism at the beginning of the 20th century. Pragmatism is basically this, whatever works. In our zeal and our effort to get people saved, which is a good thing to want, we threw doctrine out the window. We threw biblical theology out the window in favor of simple gospel preaching. Nothing wrong with gospel preaching. But if that's all that's going on in a church week in and week out and week in and week out, everybody knows that they've asked Jesus into their heart, but nobody actually knows who Jesus is. Everybody has made a decision for Christ, and there's an invitation given to every service, but nobody actually knows how Jesus relates to the Father or the Holy Spirit like we talked about tonight. Pragmatism is whatever works. Nobody likes doctrine. Nobody likes theology. Let's just throw that out the window. So this discussion is too hard. This, de- this debate has gone on for too long. Let's just not think about it. Let's just throw it out the window. Number two, theological confusion. Theology sometimes just confuses us. Number three, neglect of doctrine. One of the primary things is the inerrancy controversy in the 1970s. Evangelicalism was battling over the inerrancy of the Bible. And some of those that were formed during this time as Christians came out as really strong inerrantists, and it also pushed them into the Reformed category. Number four, shallow preaching in dead churches. Shallow preaching in dead churches. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Arminians have dead churches or they don't preach right. Because I have Arminian friends, having gone to a Free Will Baptist Bible College, that preach well. And I would sit under them anytime. I'm not saying that. But what happens is when people like me grow up in a church and all we ever hear is the same day in and day out sermons about this deep into the Bible. And I'm asking questions like, how does the Trinity work? Where did sin come from? How did Satan sin in heaven? And I'm asking these questions and all my preachers, you know, they can't answer my questions. They don't have anything other to, other to give me than some helpful life lessons with a little Jesus sprinkled on top of it. And to people like me and others, the response to that is to look for something a little bit deeper below the surface. Notable Calvinists in church history have been George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, Charles Spurgeon, to name a few. So it's not new to Baptist life. Lastly tonight, I'm going to scroll through these very quickly. Common objections. Common objections. Doesn't the Bible say 
that foreknowledge precedes election. If you're paying attention in, there in Romans chapter 8 and in 1 Peter chapter 1, it seems that foreknowledge does have something to do with election. Remember the Arminians? They said that God knew who would believe in him, therefore he chose them. So God's foreknowledge told him who would choose him, therefore he chose them. Remember, that's, that's Arminianism. Calvinism was saying, no, it's not based on that. It's not based on anything God sees in you or about you. God chooses you, therefore you respond. That's, that's the opposite side of this coin. So the Arminians say, well, look, both times it's mentioned in the Bible, it says foreknowledge. Elect according to the foreknowledge. Foreknowledge precedes predestination there in Romans chapter 8. So how does that work? A Calvinist would say that the word foreknowledge, the Greek word prognosko, means a forethought. It's not the idea of knowing something beforehand. Plus, the idea in both cases is knowing people, not things about them. So it's as if I were to tell you tonight that I foreknew Randy Severn before tonight's service. It doesn't mean that I looked down the corridors of time and I saw Randy sitting there, or I knew him that way. It means that I was acquainted with him before I got up here to preach. That's the Calvinist response for that. Number two, doesn't the Bible say Jesus died for the whole world? 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he's the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And then uh, we'll contrast that with John chapter 10. Um, and this is probably the hardest one to swallow for non-Calvinists. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died for the whole world? Yes, and then no, according to a Calvinist position. A Calvinist would say, Jesus died for his sheep. John chapter 10. Those whom the Father gave him, those are the ones who Jesus died for. Arminian says he died for everyone in the same way it's dependent on the person to kind of activate it, to make it real and alive. The Bible says he died for the sins of the whole world, and on one hand, he died for his sheep. So which is it? And that's where you get into that sufficient versus efficient. It was sufficient for everyone, but it's efficient only for those that God had chosen in Christ. Number three, doesn't the Bible say whosoever will? Oh, also with the idea of the whole world, um, uh, the Reformed side uh, would simply say that when it says that Jesus died for the whole world, it was saying that his sacrifice, his propitiation is the only one there is for humanity. In other words, the only hope of atonement that humanity has is in the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, number three, doesn't the Bible say whosoever will? This is probably the most common objection, you know, sitting through Bible college, and we had our little late night debate sessions between my Armenian friends and myself. We'd sit there and talk about these things, and uh, the Bible says whosoever will. And it does, and to that, you know, anybody, any Calvinist would say amen, or a foreign person would say amen, whosoever will. Um, we have to understand that in the Calvinist system, whosoever is not, is not a conditional phrase. It, it's, not, it's not interpreted in the way of saying, whoever, wherever, however. That's not how that, that, that's interpreted according to the Calvinist system. According to the Calvinist system, it's just an invitation. Today, I could stand here and say to you all, whoever will, whosoever will come and receive Christ, he will have you. And that's a true invitation. That is a very true invitation that Jesus gives. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no condition put on that. Everybody can come. Come on. That's the invitation. This is a promise that whoever does come will receive eternal life. That's what Jesus says. Whoever does come will receive eternal life. 
we have to balance that in the Calvinist system with John chapter 6, verse 44. You cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. So they couple that together. So the whosoever will is real. Whoever does come will receive eternal life. But whoever does come is coming because of the drawing of God and the Holy Spirit. All right, three more. Doesn't the Bible say that people resisted God's will? Acts chapter 7, Peter says you always resist the Holy Spirit. And this is true. But the thing is, we're always resisting God. Left apart from God's grace, if God had not acted upon us in the Calvinist system, it says that we would never choose him. We are in a constant state of rejecting God. That's the way all mankind mankind are. God has to override that through grace and mercy, enabling us to choose him. Okay, That's the the Calvinist answer to that objection. Doesn't Calvinism discourage missions and evangelism? We talked about this two weeks ago, and even for a Reformed-minded person, unless you're on the extreme end of hyper-Calvinism or or our primitive Baptist friends that don't believe in missions or evangelism, a Calvinist would say, yes, God commands missions and evangelism because he doesn't only predestine the outcome, he predestined the means by which they come. So if God has chosen to save someone, he has also chosen the way in which they will be saved. And it is up to us as Christians to obey the Great Commission, to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel indiscriminately to everyone so that everyone can hear and respond. Okay? Even Calvin himself sent out church planners and missionaries to France. And then lastly, doesn't Calvinism split churches? And the answer is yes, and the answer can be no. Calvinism does and has split churches. It has split churches where much is made of Calvinism to the point of shoving it down people's throats who have never heard or cared about Calvinism before in their life. It has split churches in that regard. Doctrine sometimes does that. There are other places where Calvinists and non-Calvinists can coexist, worship the same God, preach the same gospel listen to the same messages, sing the same songs, pray the same prayers, with a unity of heart, bound together in the love of the Spirit, that although we disagree on things, there is agreement in the main things of the gospel. So the answer could be yes, and the answer could be no. The result, ironically enough, is up to us. It's up to us. I hope that that's been a little informational for you, just kind of laying out what it is, how it works. There will no doubt be many conversations you can have with each other, with me. I'm here to answer any questions you have about it, okay? And again, I was not trying to present it as a, this is the way it is, simply laying out what it is and leaving you to read the scriptures and search for yourselves. My little dear wife, Jessica, grew up in a free will Baptist church. And the first two or three years of our marriage, we talked about every night about these things. Actually, before that, dating and then even into marriage. She decided to marry me anyway. I told her that God had put us together. <laughs> God predestined us to be together. <laughs> so these things don't have to divide. These things don't have to divide. They can bring us together. I invite you, though, to turn to the Scriptures, turn to the Bible, seek the Holy Spirit's teaching and leadership, and 
simply decide what you believe. For some people, that's just what this is going to do. It's going to force you to decide what you believe in a way that you might not have ever had the opportunity to do. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this night and for everything that you give us. I ask that you send us forth from this place with your blessing and with your grace and with your mercy and with your love. Bind us together in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And bind us together, most importantly, with love and with affection, with tender hearts towards one another, putting each other's needs above that of our own. Bind us together in truth. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.